Hello, Ted. How are, How are you? you, Amir? I'm great. I am great. So you're I at the love office. This setup. You like it? I am at the office. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I love the way uh, you come on with this professional mic, and I've got my AirPods in. I mean, it's just a totally different world. Yeah, it all looks all snazzy and everything, but this is all Chris Wolf's doing. He said you need to get this mic, and you need to get this you know, peace and that thing. So if it wasn't for him, I would be out in the front yard naked, standing around running, jumping up and down. So, you know, it's all him. Um, you know, it's been, it's really been a lot of fun though, doing this kind of stuff. Um, and, and learning. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I, I'm going to be very frank with you. Uh, like I am with everybody, I think, because, you know, I don't have a lot of secrets, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm terrified of this today. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm more nervous about interviewing like you and Mike because we know each other so well. And I'm going to make sure I don't trip over the boundary so much. So I'm going to go ahead and put a, a guardrail up right now and just say, if something's out of bounds, just tell me it's out of bounds. We'll take it off the table. That'll be fine. Okay. But I will probably push us to the boundary on some things. Um, you know, because I just think it's it's good stuff, you know. But uh, how are you doing? I mean, have you gotten your taste and sound smell back yet? <laughs> mm, I have. Um, I have my taste. Uh, my my smell has never really uh, returned to normal, which I've shared with you. I have three kids under 14, and uh, sometimes that's a blessing. Yeah. To not have Rezo your full sense I'm of sure. smell back. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He loves to test my ability to smell. So, um, love him to death, but that humor is, um, uh, it's actually, I've never outgrown that humor myself. So I don't know why I'm picking on him. Makes sense. Well, I know it, it, I was telling someone yesterday, the story about that time that Roya did the little spoof on the mask. And I mean, I just about peed myself how funny that was, you know, I mean, it was so funny. Um, just, to, and I'm going to go ahead and probably put this in there, but, uh, for background. So when the mass first got, start, got started, uh, being talked about and everything, uh, Amir's daughter, Roya, um, he shot a video, I guess he did it. She did it for you live first. And then you thought it was so funny. Let's do it for real and tape it. But so she, um, basically is getting into the car and she turns and looks at Amir with his camera in his hand. And she's got like one of those mud masks, like you would see from things. She goes, I don't know what the whole big deal about this whole mask thing is. I mean, I can breathe normally. This is not a big deal. What is the big deal about these masks? It was, uh, it was so funny. Yeah. It was so funny. So funny. Uh, yes. Yep. Yep. Her, uh, sense of humor definitely is situational like that. She loves to, uh, make me rethink the way that we're saying things. It's a, it's a constant, uh, challenge in my house where I use phrases or, or expressions that, that I think make sense to them. And, um, yeah, they just love to reenact and, uh, and especially if it's something along the lines of, um, an expression that we might use a lot in our age, you know, and, and just it, it, it becomes the comedy of the day for my kids. When we first got started in all this mess, I mean, all of us in Lake House boys were just throwing jokes that our kids were telling back and forth. I think that was probably one of the highlights of our everybody's day was whose kid told a joke today at the very beginning. So that was a lot of fun. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. 
Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice not fear of the disease associations with myopia is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy, and today I have with me one of my very dearest friends, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, uh, I have with me today Amir Koshnevez. Uh Amir is a practicing OD in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, he and I have uh, started, I guess, our relationship together a while back. I can't even remember what year it was, but we started together with a study group uh, with Amir, um, with my dear friend and Al and, and uh, Amir's dear friend and Al, Mike Rothschild, a great American, and uh, Carl and Katie Spear. And it grew from there into a couple of other people, and some people dropped out, some people got added. Uh, that's sort of conformed or transformed into something now we call the Lake House Boys, which I'm sure we'll get into why that's called that in a little bit. But the one thing I wanted to, to express to you guys is the just the incredible amount that Amir does for our profession and uh, the wonderful thing that he does. And just on top of that, the heart that he has, and you'll hear that throughout today. So Amir, uh, welcome. And as I said at the very beginning, I'm kind of terrified because, you know, it's not just somebody I've got a chance to interview with somebody I really love. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here today. Thank you, Ted. Uh, I, the love and respect uh, is absolutely mutual. I got to tell you, um, and I think of a handful of people in this profession that uh, I can count on to always uh, shoot straight, uh, to always have uh, a great balance of heart and mind. Uh, you really are uh, in those very few people, Ted. And, I, and, and I've, I've brought that up for other people and talked about how grateful we are to have someone like you in Vision Source and in our lives uh, and on the advisory board. Um, 
So it's uh, it's interesting. We're close friends, but there's a great deal of mutual respect because uh, we see the world differently. Um, we have different perspectives, and yet we have one mission, and that is to serve our colleagues and our profession. So um, I'm excited to be on here and to uh, share this time with you. You know, I think that part of the reason why we're able to say this about each other, though, is because of the influence, I think, that we've had with each other and the influence we have with our group of friends that we have that are so close because we are so brutally honest with each other um, to the point of, you know, drawing blood sometimes. I mean, it seems like almost. And I think it's because uh, because of that we have become who we have become. And it's been so nice having people who are not afraid to call me out on my stuff and say, uh, you know, I think you really ought to rethink that idea. And, you know, I, I can honestly say it, it's painful, but it's probably one of the best things I've got going for me. Well, I think it's, uh, it's a vulnerability factor that we've learned um, throughout the years. Uh, I can think back to the number of times you, Mike Rothschild and I gave uh, lectures and afterwards we asked, as people often do, what do you think? What, how did I do? And often what we're looking for is just simply reassurance that we did a good job because we're too fragile to hear that we didn't do very well. And uh, I can't tell you how many times the, the punch in the throat from Mike or you of, well, you, you just weren't on your game today, didn't offend me as much as it gave me a chance to pause and say, well, why? And then you'd say, well, maybe you, you know, carried on too long in this topic, or maybe you were too programmed. You've said it so many times that maybe the audience didn't understand what you were talking about. Um, and I can look back at those moments, Ted, uh, and understand uh, that those were the defining moments that helped me to shape my thinking about delivering a message um, that hopefully an audience would not only understand, but they would they would feel and they would understand where the, the, the underlying passion comes from. Um, so sharpening the knife with you guys has been fundamental for me in, 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 in all I've done. Uh, and it's not just you guys. I can think of uh, other folks who've done the same exact thing. They just didn't hold back. And they knew that as friends, we had the opportunity to cross that line and say, brother, you, you really need to think about it this way. Right. And, and I look back to telling you, you had this wonderful thing where you would click your fingers really loudly between points. And I remember coming to you and honestly saying to you, Ted, that's a bit jarring when there's a microphone and you laughed. And I was like, I don't think you know that, but you're clicking right against the microphone. And who says that unless there's a level of trust and love that you have with each other? I mean, maybe you'll say it because you're a jerk, but I wouldn't do that. I would say it so that you understand I've got to shift and maybe think differently. Sorry, that was long-winded. But. No, no, that's fine. I mean, and, and as I'm thinking about through this, I mean, what is it that, I mean, see, I don't think I've put out any kind of vibe to anybody. I mean, maybe I have, I don't know, but I mean, you're kind of the same way. I mean, how do we, how do we show ourselves to be so vulnerable in front of people that people are willing to do that for us? I mean, what is it that gives people that ability to, okay, you have permission to tell me whatever you want to tell me. Oh, I think it's, I think, I think that's, that's, that's evident from your body language. I, I, I can tell you within 10 seconds if I'm dealing with someone with a big ego or not. I think it's in the first few words that you say to someone. If it's a lot of eyes in the conversation, every sentence starts with I, I know that I have to 
be a little more guarded with um, with my words. I think that when somebody has an open heart uh, and they have an open mind, um, it shows very quickly. Uh, let me give you a great example of that. <clears throat> and this is this is one of those tipping points in my life, honestly. Um, uh, thanks for reminding me of it. Um, I have a, a wonderful friend, uh, yours as well, uh, Dr. Mark Leary. Um, Mark and I ran into each other about a year before I went to optometry school. I was in University of Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and he was at University of uh, Eastern Carolina. And um, I said that all wrong. Let's just do that again. <laughs> uh, he's at East Carolina University. And um, and uh, he came to Chapel Hill for a uh, orientation and sort of meet and greet with all the schools, all the optometry schools. He didn't know me. I didn't know him at all. We were walking into a, uh, a meeting center and um, it was maybe 10 steps ahead of me. And Mark turned around and uh, he asked if I was going to the optometry event. And I said, I am. And as I caught up to him, he introduced himself to me, shook my hand. And um, I felt a certain warmth uh, in his uh, um, in his approach. I felt um, no judgment. Uh, I know this is a weird place to go to very quickly. But, um, you know, being a um, Middle Eastern descent uh, person, I almost always living in the South, I almost always worried or sensed there was a bit of, um, you know, there was a, maybe a small segment of the population that uh, looked at me that way, as opposed to looking at me for the person that I was. Right. And it was always uh, on the back of my mind, especially when you're younger, you tend to be a little more aware and fragile. Um, <clears throat> and then I learned very quickly how to decipher if somebody was generally the normal human being walking around just wanting to make sure that they do the right things and they have the right interactions. The vast majority of people are that way. And what's interesting about Mark is that he immediately showed himself to me, like immediately within 10 seconds, I knew who he was. And, and, you know, fast forward now 20 something years, he's still um, one of my closest friends. And, um, you know, so, so you asked, what is it that makes us open and vulnerable? I think it's really, uh, it's your essence. It's your being from the moment that people meet you, they probably sense that, um, you lean in and are genuinely interested in learning and learning from them, learning about them. Uh, so it's a giver and taker, uh, mentality for me. I think people who are givers like you, um, it's a, it's very quick to decide to, 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 to see and to understand who you're talking to. You know, but the funny part about that is, is there's the, also this, I hate to go in this direction, but there's sort of a selfish part of it as well. I mean, I know there's a huge payoff having that kind of, because if I'm going to constantly hold myself back, then I'm not going to have the, I hate to say it, payoff at the end. Um, I'm not going to have these deep relationships. I'm not going to have these people who are going to be able to be there when I need them, you know, and maybe that's, you know, something we learned the hard way somewhere in our life, or, or maybe that's just, I don't know. I have a lot to believe that it has a lot to do with our families and how we were brought up. Uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting your family and, um, just how open they are. Um, it's a, it's an amazing situation to have someone and to see that generational part of it that goes along with it. It's, it's really incredible. 
Yeah, you know, Ted, I'll, I'll challenge the notion that maybe there is a selfish part and maybe that there is a, um, a knowledge that we've learned along the way that we might need them. I'll challenge that. I think that's a retrospective thinking. And this is from my experience. I, I think the greatest lesson that I learned from my grandmother was uh, the law of reciprocity, that if you give without an ask, if you give because you're doing what you believe you must do, then the world will take care of you, that the, the world reciprocates and, and, and you will have something in return. And I, I dare say that you don't open your heart and you don't engage people because you think one day I'll need them. I think when you think about it in retrospect, you say, wow, isn't it amazing that when I actually needed this person, they showed up and maybe because I gave first, but it, it's, it's interesting that most of us now realize that uh, if you if you give um, and, and the way that you've poured yourself into the profession, the way that I think I have poured myself into Vision Source and the profession and my colleagues. And, and so we're on the same exact path here um, that we don't have to ask for anything that we just know that that's the right thing to do. But I think the, the, the good that comes from it and the, what we gain from it down the road um, is, is simply because you've elevated um, so many people uh, around you that hopefully that, you know, one day when you need them, they'll be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was being a little bit, you know, just kind of you know, trying to edit it a little bit. But so, <laughs> you know, one of the things with our families, and I, I do want to get into this if you're, if you're okay with it, but you're... Sure. The way you got to where you are today was way different than the way I got to where I am today. Um, you know, how much pressure, first of all, was it for you to become a doctor because of your dad being a doctor? Um, and then how much pressure was it for you to succeed because of the way you got to where you are today? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question or two um you know my history and you know that um one of the one of the famous lines from my father was uh when we got here and uh and i'll explain what that means when we got here but one of my famous lines uh, my father was hey amir so um are you going to be a doctor or are you going to be a doctor uh, <laughs> and that was <laughs> that's that's how he saw it um but i'll tell you why because um, it became very clear to him because of life events that a doctor uh, who took care of people, so clinical doctors, um, they, they transcend any um, cultural, racial, uh, societal barriers because society generally uh, looks to doctors to solve their pains and their problems, and they appreciate the care that you provide, especially if you uh, are doing it for the right reason, which is the very vast majority of doctors out there say 99%. So one, that was a lesson that he knew that in this new world, that uh, that would help me to be free of maybe some of the challenges that people face with cultural differences, what have you. The other is that my culture, I'm Iranian in descent, and uh, Iranian people really respect doctors, so much so that when you say one day I'm going to be a doctor 
and you're in the fifth grade, from that point on, your mother calls you Dr. Kushnevis. It's just that kind of thing. You know, that's, that's how it is. They just want so badly for you to be a doctor because they believe in healers uh, being, uh, you know, at the top of the, uh, of, of the pyramid of respect. So, um, so I think there was also the cultural thing. But, you know, uh, Ted, how did I get here? And it's a, it's, a, it's a story that I don't often tell, and I, I probably won't get into the depth of the discussion here, not because not I don't want to share, but just because it's, it's hard to hear a grown man get upset on, on, a, on a radio, um, on a podcast. But, um, but I think it, one thing you, you have always known about me is that I look back at my uh, life as, um, as basically a continuation um, of uh, a gift uh, that my parents gave me. Um, you know, I, I, I was a 12-year-old who was facing incredible pressures in Iran post-revolution. So we went from one of the most free, um, Americanized uh, countries in the world under the Shah's regime, and right or wrong, it was very pro-America, uh, incredible liberties. Uh, Iranians lived uh, a way that no one else did. They didn't even need a passport uh, visa. I'm sorry. They didn't need a visa to come into the U.S. It, it, that's how we lived. We were just like an extension of America in the 70s. And then when the Shah fell and the um, Islamic regime took over uh, during the revolution and beyond, my family didn't escape like everybody else did who uh, had the means um, and the reason is my, my father led a hospital system. He had uh, a great sense of responsibility to people of this incredible town that we lived in, in Iran, the southern part of Iran, uh, a city called Shiraz. And Shiraz is in the Pars region of, of Iran. That region of Iran is just green and beautiful. And it's where some of the greatest poets uh, in world history have come from. And it's a rich culture. But my father felt very much obligated to the people there as an OBGYN. Uh, there was a um, there was a mass exit of all physicians and people with means from Iran during that time. And uh, who was going to deliver the babies? Who was going to take care of the people? So he decided to stay. Uh, and we, we, we stayed as a family. So there was um, my mom and dad, my sister, who's older than me, and then my brother, who's significantly younger than me. He was only two at the time. And uh, and my grandmother living uh, with us. And uh, and so we we. Um, we, we stayed and faced the consequences, which uh, were pretty severe. Um, it's interesting. Um, my dad was there to help serve, but yet he was seen as um, part of the old regime simply because he had means. Uh, the country was uh, being turned upside down because if you were anyone who had lived the Western lifestyle, that you were the enemy. Um, and these were radicals. These were absolute crazies who took over the country. And you know, 30 years later, we're still held hostage in Iran because of them. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, um, so we, we stayed and, uh, we faced, uh, really tough days, uh, five years of, you know, my mom and my sister covering my grandmother, covering their heads and, um, having to live a different way than they had ever lived before that, uh, Iranians took pride in, uh, giving, uh, women, um, freedoms that the rest of the world didn't have at the time. You know, we were, women were divorcing and voting and owning and uh, way before most of the world and in Iran. And my mother, uh, was an Olympic caliber runner in Iran. She, uh, uh, you know, most of the Middle East was running with 
cover and my mom was running shorts and a t-shirt like the rest of the world. It was just interesting dynamic. Right. And they just, the pendulum swung so hard. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, we faced some tough times, rationing food, uh, not having the things that uh, we needed. And, and even the school systems became very rough. Uh, and I faced uh, a lot of personal threats, uh, as a child, uh, it all sort of came to a head when, um, there was a call to, uh, get kids, young boys to, um, to basically go and serve the military because Iraq had attacked Iran and, uh, and there was a war and, uh, it would take young men who really weren't in fighting years, uh, ages to run the minefields ahead of the soldiers and uh, become martyrs for the, uh, for the cause. Um, and my parents knew that, uh, it was probably not long before, uh, they would grab me and, um, and uh, so um, once we knew that the time had come uh, and that it would be a matter of a short time before that would happen for me, um, you know, my, my mother and father just just picked up and just said, well, we're going to have to leave no matter what. And um, they basically started to pay off anybody that could pay off. They started giving away everything they had and uh, just sort of slowly watched the world sort of change around us. And, um, we found an out, um, probably not wise to say over the air, but, you know, we found someone who was willing to take worldly possessions and uh, get us out of the country. So once we left, um, it was a pretty difficult time, a very scary time. Um, but we landed in France and, um, had to get political asylum to stay there. And, uh, and uh, not knowing where we go next, um, but knowing that we had gotten out of the country and they had saved my life. Um, and of course, the hardship that my mother and my sister were going through and the life that my brother would have one day. It was just all of it was it was necessary to leave. And uh, of course, we grabbed we grab grandma as well. And uh, she's uh, she was definitely the matriarch of the family. Um, yeah. And then from there, just. Um, You know, just the the sacrifice you go through. But the funny part about all that is it seems like a sacrifice at the time, but the blessing of going through something like that and how that shapes you in your future. Um, I guess, and I've thought about it a lot lately. Now, right now we're going through this watching uh, Afghanistan revert. And I've thought a lot about you and your family and what the kind of thoughts that must be stirring up in you guys watching that happen. Um, but knowing too, that some of these people that are going to get out of this, are going to come to wherever they end up are going to have such a huge, I would, I won't say it, advantage over, over those of us who've just always had it. And I, I've, I see that happen over and over again. And, um, you know, I've heard you tell stories about coming to Rockingham and, uh, you know, not speaking any English and going to a point, you know, from where that was to where you are now, where, you know, it's, it's just an amazing situation to watch, but yet it's, it's just a human story. You know, there's nothing, I mean, I don't want to say this 
the way it's, it's not really that special, but it is very special at the same point. You know, we all have some sort of problem to go through. Most of us just don't look at it that way. We look at it, something has been done to us and we just sort of move on with it. But the fact that you could take what you did and say, this is what shaped me and made me where I can give others a chance is probably why you are where you are. Well, I, thanks, Sid. I, I, I needed that break. Um, I, uh, I, I will tell you that when we finally made it here through a tremendous ordeal and, and much hardship, uh, one thing was very clear. To uh, make something of the life, right? And I think whenever you are put to, in that position as a child, especially, uh, you really grasp at uh, purpose and um, and and you have a sense of drive that is um, fueled by both uh, appreciation for the opportunity and guilt of of the pain that you may have caused your family. Um, but the other thing that I really understood was that this was the land of opportunity because as soon as I got here, I, I told you I knew yes, no, and water. That's all I knew. Imagine you're almost 13 years old and that's all you know. Uh, and you sit in the back of a classroom and, um, you know, great teachers would, would teach the class and then run to the back and sit down and teach me everything starting with the alphabet, uh, honestly. And, um, and I'm in the seventh grade and, and I don't speak their language and my sister too. And, and, and my brother was a baby at the time. He was two years old. But, um, what's interesting is, um, just for fun, I lost my accent within a year of being here because I learned that at 12 is the very last year in your life that you can learn a language and make it your own like mother language. Right. And so my sister was 14 and she still has this beautiful exotic accent a little bit, not, not, not so much, but she has it. And then my brother was raised in Rockingham, North Carolina. Um, so he looks just like me, but he has a Southern accent. And I think that is the most brilliant and amazing thing in the world. It's just, uh, how crazy it is to have had him be raised in this small town in North Carolina that we love so much, by the way. That, that community took us in. Uh, my dad delivered at one point nearly 50% of kids in the county every year. And um, so it's really interesting. Dr. Kosh Nevis, that they could barely pronounce, uh, became the guy who, at his retirement, Everywhere we went, everywhere we went, people would just get up and hug him. Just random guys, you know, uh, six foot five burly guys and be like, oh, you know, you delivered me. And uh, I just, it's hard to imagine that uh, people know a doctor like that. And I think, Ted, I've always said to you, you know, I envy the fact that you're in this small town and you have such an impact on the lives of people there. Uh, because in Charlotte, while I might see people and, and they may say hi and, um, it's a very different world than um, being a healthcare provider in a, in a small town, which creates such a bind uh, to the community, creates such a, uh, a bond, I should say, to the people of that community. So anyway, side story there, but, uh, but you're right. Uh, I have absolutely, I, I treated high school, college, uh, optometry school and my career as a, um, as a, as a way to, um, make, uh, you know, not only my parents uh, proud, but um, it's sort of um, giving them a sense of it was worth it, right? It was worth uh, the, the sacrifices. 
Yeah, and for me yeah. now on the backside of this, I'm getting this gift of watching and hearing your stories and watching you. I got to go through this exact same thing with one of my former associates, uh, Janine Wynn. Uh, when she and her family escaped from Vietnam when the communists took over and hearing that story and, you know, it's, it's, it, uh, it really impacts you, even though you didn't go through that, but you start thinking, Oh my gosh, this is, I mean, I've just been given this. This has been easy for me, you know, for the rest of you guys who've gone through some of these things, it's, it's a blessing to have those stories told to us. And that's one reason why I wanted to get you to, to tell that story that level and i really appreciate you being vulnerable and, and talking about that um let's shift gears a little bit let's talk about cars <laughs> um you have a little bit of a passion i might call it obsession with cars um yeah. you know and i can i can go back to the very first time i think that we really got to see what you were driving. Uh, Mike and I had come to Charlotte and you were driving a Saab station wagon and you were so excited <laughs> about the Saab station wagon and how it came with a driving course. And I was thinking a station wagon with a driving course. I, I okay, I, I guess, you know, and uh, the transitions you've made from cars has been just really fun watching you go through these stages. But what, where did you get your love of, of cars? What, what sure. gave you that? First of all, I love that you call it a Saab station wagon. That is definitely <laughs> driving a nail as far as you can into my heart. Um, but I love it, and I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so no, I, I, I grew um, a love for uh, automobiles. Um, when I was in high school, I had a distant relative who showed up in a bright orange E30 M3, which was the legend of all M cars. Anybody who knows cars knows that's the prize possession in the BMW world. And uh, it was a manual and uh, it had BBS wheels on it. And, you know, here I am looking at the cars my family own, and they're all very much utilitarian sort of family cars. And then this thing pulls up and it's like a I don't know. It's like seeing fireworks in your driveway. It's very weird. It's just a, something I can't describe. And then he strapped me in it and went for a drive and he was taking corners. You know, my face was plastered to the windows and it, there's something about that moment. I think that made me love um, the feeling that I had being in a, a car that was a performance driven car. And so that's sort of always been my thing. It's, um, it's, it's, I love cars for what they are, even, even SUVs and Jeeps and what have you. But at the end of the day, I, I actually reference Mark Leary again. He once called me when I asked him if I should buy car one or two, he said, I don't care which one it is. Just make sure it's fast. And I've never forgotten that. That is, that's actually the way that I kind of view cars is how fast are they? But obviously being responsible and not driving them that way in public roads, but I get an opportunity to get them on tracks and I get an opportunity to get close um, uh, roads and, uh, and drive the way that those cars were meant to be driven. But to your, to your point, um, even when we started to think about having a family, uh, my wife and I didn't jump into an SUV or minivan right away. I talked her into an estate car because in Europe, the Saab 93 Aero was a hot commodity and it's, uh, it looked like a cool car, but it was a station wagon. But in America, it was way before its time because that's kind of become a thing now where a lot of wagons are now hot again. I just had a 20-year start on that, Ted. You just didn't know it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I bought this I bought this Saab, and it, it came with a European trip, which actually was brilliant. I got to see Sweden and uh, 
and Denmark. And then uh, I got to go into a professional driving course to learn how to drive it. And, uh, you know, looking back, uh, a front wheel drive station wagon, um, that's not the greatest driving car in the world, but that's okay. Uh, I, I was buying in at the time. So, Do you think that, I mean, I know this may be drawing a large correlation, but do you think that actually formulated some of your, I'm going to take this to the next step, the next step, the next step? I mean, the, the driving school that went with it. Yeah. No, I think so. I, I think, Ted, one of the things that uh, my brother once said to me was, Amir, you tend to, uh, you know, when you put yourself into something, you you try to be the best at it, right? You just always push as hard as you can when you actually commit to something. I think that's probably what it is, a personality-driven thing, where I, I'd have this competitive uh, mind that says, if you're going to do something, do it all the way. And uh, and cars, definitely along that line. Like, you know, once I bought one and I understood it and I wanted to do something a little better, and each time I purchased a car, I wanted it to be something that is better in performance, better in appearance, whatever it is. And, uh, so there's a little bit of that. I've always challenged myself to be the best I can. And, uh, I think that's why you've seen me go through cars the way I have is I'm, I'm bored easily. I'm always like, okay, I've got this one down. I need to look at something else. That's going to give me that pastime entertainment that I need. Um, and, uh, and it's just a, it's a, it's a fun thing, but I will say when I know I'm not good at something, I don't do it. So I look really good in the things that I do. And I, when I, when I know I'm not good at something, it is quickly off the list. Uh, I won't do it. So then of the vehicles you've had, what's been your favorite and why? <laughs> pick your favorite child. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> pick my favorite child. Uh, I would say at the moment, there is a car that I, um, it's not the fanciest. It's not the, the most expensive. It's not the fastest, but it's special. And, uh, I'll never forget. I, I was able to get one of 300, um, one of 300, um, issued, uh, BMWs in the U S market. Uh, it's a track version of the M4, which you see many of them on the road, but this one is a special one. It's called the GTS. And every 10 years or so they create a GTS, uh, BMW does. And, um, and I was able, I was lucky enough to get an allocation and, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason that, that car is probably one I'll never sell. It, it, if it is it, just something about it, it speaks to me. It's not the fastest, not the best performance none of that. It's, it's rare. It's, um, it's the, it's the kind of car when you buy it, you kind of realize, wow, I just got something super special. That is rare. And that's what binds me to it. I think my personality matches my personality very well, too. It's funny how you think of those things. Like people associate with their dogs, I associate with cars. So it tends to be uh, the reason why I like it so much. So one of the things you did, um, some might consider this lucky. And I think part of it has a lot to do with just putting yourselves in the right place at the right time. I mean, you basically created this luck. Um, you ordered a uh, an M version of a BMW uh, was about seven years ago, eight years ago, I guess it was, uh, was it, it was an M three, wasn't it? Okay. The F 80. And you ordered this car, you heard it was coming out. You decided to go ahead and place an order and you put in with a, with the dealership. And then the day of, of uh, reckoning comes about and you get this phone call from the salesman. So what is that? What was that phone call like? 
So, yeah, so they said, um, hey, you have an opportunity to, um, we, we put your order in the minute that you could put the order in for the F80 M3. Sight unseen, I kind of knew that this would be the next generation I wanted to get. Comes in, it's literally numbered one. And um, I uh, was so thrilled to have this car uh, before almost anybody else, months before anybody else. And so I get the car and I can't even insure it because insurance companies did not have the car listed yet. So I remember bringing it home and thinking, well, I can't really drive it. Um, and, uh, I had this awesome opportunity to, uh, stare at a car that was so new to the eye, so novel, uh, and in high performance, just everything I wanted. And then four doors could put my kids in it. And, uh, took a few photos of it and, and, uh, posted it on my personal Instagram. And it's really funny at the time, you know, you post something, you get a few likes and, you know, that's a pretty typical experience. Uh, so I post this white M3 and, uh, I woke up the next day and it was like 2000 likes on it or something. And it just blew my mind because I was thinking, what's going on? Um, and I had always, uh, been a gearhead and always had modified my cars to an extent. So I started to tell the story of that car and what I was going to do with it and how I was going to modify it and what pers- how to personalize it, I should say. And it, it just became a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, that car was probably as famous as any car you would find on social media. I mean, I had uh, uh, well over 100,000 followers just following the, the story on that car. And it was just it was really neat. I started to learn a lot about the storytelling aspect and the car community and how that uh, world um, operates. And as I started to dig in, I realized that I was accidentally sort of starting a bit of a movement for a lot of folks. Uh, they weren't telling their story that way. And the whole community sort of was building around it. Um, I've made some lifelong friends. I uh, gathered 20 of the best of the best together. We formed a little company that uh, is now uh, one of my favorite things. It communicates with the automotive industry through these 20 influencers, and they um, are genuine. They absolutely don't accept um, sort of compensation for doing the things they love to do, but they get to work with those companies to have a voice in the uh, car community and uh, they get incredible experiences. They get to go to big races and they get to experience research events. And uh, it's been a really fun thing. And so now I'm fortunate enough to work with Michelin, one of the finest companies in the world as uh, an ambassador, but somebody who actually like right now I'm doing a research event for them where I get to uh, see where the consumer mindset is on different tires and how they perform and, um, how lucky am I to sit in a room with Michelin people and uh, as an optometrist uh, to uh, talk about tires and research. It's just phenomenal. Just the luck that I've had to, to be in this position. Well, the reason I wanted to sort of talk about this is because, I mean, you've, we've all heard of Seth Godin and he talks about having your tribe and this was kind of your tribe. This was your, this was sort of your niche, your nerdiness, if you want to call it that. You know, and it's so funny how we can take some of these nerdy things that we think of nothing and it becomes something massive, um, you know, and and it's even I mean, we can even do this with our own businesses, you know, um, taking social media is one thing, but taking the personal aspect of social media and really, truly developing that side of it, that's where all the magic happens. Um, you know, I don't know many people who have an Instagram following of 175,000 plus 
followers. I mean, and it's your car. It's not even you. It's just a car, you right. know. So to have something like that is just a little bit insane, you know. And and uh, I, I had it happen to me for the very first time about uh, about two months ago. Somebody was looking through Instagram and was on your page, and I go, "Oh my gosh, I know that guy." And they go, "No way," you know. And to have something like that happen was even more strange. Uh, for those of you, it's car, it's carnucopia, and it's not just about it's a number of other of Amir's uh, friends in tuner theory as well, but just amazing pictures of some beautiful, beautiful automobiles, uh, including. One that didn't stay around very long, but it actually became an impetus for, impetus for me to get into a Tesla. Um, you had a had a Model X for a little bit, and now I've got a Model yeah. Three and love it. And uh, it's it's been it's been incredible having this kind of nerdy thing happen, even with this car. Um, it's almost like there's a whole group of people. I I put it this way. So um, we went to Jacksonville to go see a concert a few weeks ago. And real close to the hotel was where the supercharger was. And I went, I got up early before everybody else did and drove over the supercharger and plugged in just to go ahead and top off the tank before I were getting ready to head back home. It's about a two hour drive from there. And there was another car that was there when I got there. We both finished charging at just about the same time. He actually had unplugged before I did and had gotten back in his car. And as he drives off, he waves at me. And I wave back, and I'm thinking, holy crap, I never do that at a gas pump. I've never. I mean, <laughs> who waves at anybody at the gas station? Nobody, unless you know them. I mean, these are people I have never seen before. I'm sitting in front of a basically a gas pump, and I'm waving at them. How nerdy is that, you know? And uh, it's kind of funny how these little niches develop and where those dots start getting connected and how that sort of takes you in from one thing to the next. It's, it's just bizarre and strange. No, I, I am definitely a student of uh, communities that are formed around a common passion. I found that uh, yet another example of how a uh, common um, love for something uh, and hopefully uh, something that uh, has a positive impact, obviously, on society and on each other. Uh, the car community is a, is a very collaborative community. It's very loving. It doesn't see color. It doesn't see differences. Um, I, look, I, I drove a very modified Jeep and, uh, I'm talking off-road Wrangler that uh, was built to, uh, I don't know, climb Everest, it seems for some folks. But, um, and it's funny. I would go into Jeep community and, uh, there'd be some guys who are true sort of off-roaders and they'd see me step out of it and their jaw would hit the ground because they just can't believe I'm the one driving that. But honestly, within seconds, we'd be comparing, how did you gear it? You know, what suspension did you use? And um, how you got a supercharger? What is that like? You know, I'd hand them the keys and say, drive it. It's, it's, it's amazing how quickly human beings can transcend differences when you find a common passion or love for something. Uh, we see that all the time in Vision Source. You know that it is. It's 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 to me that's the pinnacle of of this this idea that we have a community of people who are so passionate about a cause, and that is private practice optometry and its success. That we don't see each other as anything other than family. It, it's it's almost frightening, honestly, because I walked around the exchange, uh, and the number of people that simply just came up and said. Thank you. And awesome. Or I'm so thr thrilled to be part of this community. 
the number of people that did that, Ted, I walked around with, you know, I was choked up the whole meeting. Um, just seeing how passionate people are about what we do. Um, but that happens in these other little worlds, the car world, the Tesla world is known for that. People just love to connect and talk. The Jeep world does that, right? The, 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 the sports car world does that, but it's not just about that. I'll share with you my other passion. Uh, I got into martial arts really late. I decided that I want to do something really crazy. I was 38 and staring at 40 and now that's 11 years ago. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do something that really challenged myself. Uh, I was no longer uh, active competitively in sports and I grew up sort of being a uh, little uh, addicted to the competitive world. And, um, and I got into Muay Thai. And if you don't know Muay Thai, it's, uh, it's a combat sport out of Thailand that, um, you know, for the most part, it's, it's, it's street warfare. It is very uh, challenging but it's also a martial art that has matured into a uh, respected um, um, uh, form of, of, uh, of the arts. And I got into it and listen, I walked in, I didn't belong in there. Every guy in there looked like they were ready to go to war. And uh, there's just optometrist who walks in, who looks nothing the part. And, uh, and I very quickly when I got in there and, and, and I started to connect with folks and started to really, uh, showed that I was vulnerable, that I wanted to learn and I wanted to be good at it. Um, I saw folks who I would probably never talk to in, 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 in the real world, walking by them, um, become close friends, people who, uh, really invested in me developing my skills. And, uh, I got just completely involved in it to a point where uh, I looked up one day and I thought, I have a chance, I have a chance to actually achieve a rare thing, which is to become a crew or an instructor in, in Muay Thai, which is a pretty difficult thing to achieve. Um, it's testing is legendary. Most people uh, don't want to go through it. And so finally, after seven years or so of training, uh, one of the most incredible moments of my life was to be tested by uh, Ajahn Chai, who comes from Thailand. And he's actually former Bruce Lee sparring partner back when the the arts would battle each other to see who's best. Uh, and he is um, 80 something years old, but he still comes to the U S and tests a few people. And I got a chance to go out in Oregon in the, in the, in the, in the woods and uh, pretend that we we're in Thailand and uh, for four days train hard and then be tested as an instructor. And I don't say that to brag. I tell you that because it actually is sort of symbolic to, everything we've talked about sort of uh, analogy of what we talked everything we've talked about. If you're going to commit yourself to something commit to the logical end result, which is I have mastered it, that I have become someone who can teach, who can give back. And once I became an instructor and I'm sitting there just com completely in pieces. And the first thought I had was, you know, I can share with my children that, you know, you can achieve something that is this difficult to achieve that honestly was at the very top of the most difficult things I've ever put, uh, been put through. But I also got a chance to come back and teach and I've enjoyed teaching now for a few years when I really get to invest in other people. So, um, these are the kinds of, and the community aspect I wanted to share with you that Muay Thai community is just something else. We, uh, we just show so much respect to each other and so much love for learning. Um, so it's a, it's similar to the car world. I think it's it's um, it's all about com community for me.
So I think it's got a lot to do too with, again, sort of circling back a little bit in the beginning. I think it's got a lot to do with just the the thought processes we had that put us into these places. I don't think it was accidental that you got involved in the things that you got involved in uh, or I, or I did or any of the guys that you and I hang out with on a regular basis. Um, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't an accident. Um, it's part of our nature. It's part of who we are and realizing that I can't survive without having somebody like you to speak into my life. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Um, you made a large change in the way your professional career is uh, a couple of years ago. And so how many days a week are you actually in the office now? So I see patients uh, one day a week on Mondays. Um, and then four days a week, of course, I'm in my role of vision source. Yeah, and I think it's incredible that you're able to still do what it is that makes the second role important because it gives you some validity to be able to speak to, well, here's what happens in the real world for all of us optometrists. But how has your view of what optometry is changed since you stepped into the senior leadership role at vision source? You know, for the sake of being vulnerable, I'll tell you that um, seeing patients uh, full time, uh, was sometimes challenging for me because I felt that uh, maybe I wasn't growing. I wasn't expanding my uh, abilities to lead. Um, uh, I, I, was, I was thirsty for an opportunity to be able to help my colleagues be better. So I was doing it fairly well in my own practice, but I had this itch. But I didn't really love seeing patients five days a week because um, I felt like I could do something else. But that was pretty evident a year or two into my practice. Um, and I started to reach out doing other things like you do lecture and serve boards and serve the profession and state society and anything I could to help. But when I made the decision to um, take the leap into moving in, in a leadership position at Vision Source, one, it was because two people at the time that professionally I respect more than anyone else. Um, honestly, uh, Glenn Ellisor and Jim Greenwood, th those two people probably poured more into the lives of optometrists that we know than anybody else and all that they've done. And uh, almost indirectly, they you know, never take credit for it. But when they both sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, we really want you to consider this position. Uh, it was very difficult to say no to those two. I mean, talk about two legends asking you to uh, to do something. But for me, it was it was a soul searching moment. I had to think about leaving the practice um, nearly full time, leaving the practice, and then, of course, most importantly, my family and the sacrifices they would have to make because this role is demanding, and it's 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 not four days a week. It's it's every day, all the time. But but it's a uh, but it's, it's extremely rewarding because the work you're doing is helping your colleagues and the people you love in the profession, hopefully, and, and a private practice optometry. Um, but what I knew then was that I couldn't leave clinical practice. One, I would probably only have a runway of a couple of years before I was not relevant. And two, to your point, I still own and operate my practice. I still serve in operations of my practice. 
And if I'm not running the practice, if I don't understand the challenges that our doctors are facing, that our staff's facing, that our practices are facing, then really I'm not an optometrist who's serving in the chief medical officer role. I am an, I'm an executive, but maybe not an optometrist. So that was, a, that was absolutely critical for me to maintain those positions. What's been the biggest surprise that has happened to, you, to everything for you since you've taken this role? Biggest surprise. Um, I think seeing private equity um, make such an impact on the way we think about private practice um, and then the incredible response of private practice to that challenge. I think people only think about the attrition factor, losing practices, private equity. What I find interesting is since a competing private equity group started a practice in my backyard. Literally both of my locations have a startup private equity location, a true greenfield opened up directly in my parking lot of both locations. Unbelievable. Just hadn't heard of that anywhere else. But since that time, my practice has evolved and has responded to that challenge in a way that I'm just so incredibly proud. We are so much better than we were before that group set up in our parking lot. I'm not giving them credit. I'm actually giving credit to my staff and my team for doubling down on our culture, doubling down on who we are and what we believe. That this is a perfect example of the expression, culture eats tactics for lunch. It is unbelievable how good private practice has become in the face of uh, the challenge that we're facing from corporate um, take over of private practice. And, and that's, that's the thing that I'm so excited and, about. And that's definitely not to say that you're, you haven't been tactical. I mean, you guys have made some very strategic moves with your practice, but I agree. Knowing the team uh, with the people that I've met within your organization uh, that work with you and Loop, um, just an amazing group of people. And, um, you know, and Thank you. to have, it's it's no wonder. I mean, how could you not attract that? people to you the way you are already. Um, you know, it's just a, it's, it's just going to happen that way. So I've kept you for almost an hour now, um, which seems like about five minutes. Um, as we're closing, if there's one thing you want to leave the audience with, what is that one thought you want to have them have as they walk away from this? So much of this was personal. Um, I didn't expect it. I expected some of that because we're so close. I figured a lot of our conversation would be centered around optometry and vision source. But what's interesting is, to me, this conversation has, has made me realize, and I hope that the takeaway from anybody who's still with us listening is, at the end of the day, human beings um, are are all looking to serve one thing, which is that primal mission of taking care of ourselves, our families, uh, being able to make this world that we live in a better place. I think that the vast majority of people have my story and uh, theirs is slightly colored differently, but we all go through challenges. But perseverance is not a strength. It's actually a result of uh, understanding that you must respond to the challenges that you're 
you're, you're faced with, with thoughtful, um, maybe very honest uh, way of looking at your life and saying, what changes can I make? What things can I dedicate myself to? How much am I going to pay attention to the challenge in front of me versus what I can control, what I, what I can invest in? Uh, I hope that this was more hopefully a story that would inspire a younger person to say, hey, I may be faced with some challenges, but uh, gosh, if that Amir guy can do it, I can do it. And I, uh, uh, I, I, I feel like it's this, this is a moment of truth for all of us as we're looking at COVID challenges that we're facing. We're looking at society challenges that we're facing and the pressures from abroad. And we're saying, gosh, is the sky falling, you know, or is it that... There are always going to be challenges. And if we, as human beings, unite, if we are a community, if we focus on the things we can control, and each one of us individually take responsibility for what things we can impact. Um, I'm, I'm like you, Ted. I think you're the one who's ever brought this to my attention. But I don't point outside the window and blame. I just don't. And I hope that uh, that's the takeaway, is to just look inside, dig deep, focus on the things you can control, and... Uh, Hopefully, you'll see some positive changes in your life, and uh, you'll do better than I've ever done. Thanks, Amir. I, I, I can't add anything to that at all. I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, for those that are listening here, I hope you've uh, taken some of this and stopped, pulled your car over, wrote the notes down, whatever it took. But uh, if nothing else, Amir, uh, just the fact that we've had a time to share together, I really I can't appreciate this anymore. Thank you. Love you, Ted. Thank Love you, too, brother. Thanks for having me. So well, just real quick, let me show you this, how professional this really is. So I've got my microphone sticking on top of a plastic box. Yes. Yeah. I should have that ahead of time. <laughs>